So tonight what I want to talk about is hopefully a, a way of simplifying things, which isn't really the way my mind works, but, um, you know, we give so many different instructions and stuff. So I'm borrowing from uh, one of the ways that uh, one of my teachers, Sayadaw Utejaniya, talks. I find he's a very pithy and, to me, amusing way of putting things. And so what I want to talk about, borrowing from him, is the three jobs of a yogi. That's you and me and all of us, the three jobs, uh, which is like hopefully to simplify. So, of course, all beginning by by recognizing, which hopefully we do, that uh, meditation is the work of the mind. So the three jobs are the work of the mind. The first one, the first job, our job, is that to begin our, not only our meditation, our whole spiritual practice with some form of right view. Now, right view in the way that the Buddha speaks about it in the suttas is a vast topic and uh, encompassing so many different things. And, I'm, and just for this beginning way like of our first job, though, I want to talk about it very simply not complex, all the ways you have to understand anicca, dukkha, anatta, and what's wholesome action and what's unwholesome action. You could go on and on, and we probably will over the next uh, few weeks because it's fascinating. But this beginning aspect, our first job, is simply having some sense of knowing why we're doing this. You know, that that there's... um, a possibility for um, less suffering, if you just want to put it that simply, to have some um, basic understanding that what we're doing is, you could say, in a good cause, that there's something behind it. We're not just kind of, you know, sitting and walking and following the breath and being aware. And you know how sometimes you're just doing it without really any sense of why. So right view is just knowing that, that um, it's possible to come to a different way of relating to our life. It's possible to have, not that we know it yet for ourselves, but this sense of a direction or the sense of a potential to live with more peace and ease. That's my language. You find your own. That's why... Um, For myself, why I think I've always loved and why I spend my life sharing um, the teachings from the teachings of the Buddha. I mean, there's so many different ways, you know, in this world to practice uh, for awakening, to understand our life better. But I've always loved uh, the way the Buddha describes things and the way, again, his teachings are complex, but at the core, at the heart, I feel, this is me now, he's just taking us into the core of life, the core of experience. You know, that what he says, he started his own journey by just seeing how this life is. Why do we suffer? This life with all its beauty and all its marvels and so much sorrow. Why is there this suffering? Why do beings, starting with himself, suffer? Why are we unhappy? Why are we discontented? 
And then his whole trajectory of his practice was, you know, not sitting and railing against it or trying to think about it, but setting out in an exploration of his own experience, his own mind and body, to really look into, to really explore and see. Does it have to be this way, that there's so much discontent, dis-ease, suffering? Is there another way? Is there a cause? Is there an end of it? What is it? So you can hear the whole Buddha's teaching in that. And I'm staying simple tonight (laughs) with that sense of um, not just going out and following the stream or going by what was taught before, but looking for himself. And so what he offers us, of course, all the Buddha's teachings are a path, what he discovered, what he shared, what he can offer us. But in the end, as I think, I think someone has already said on this retreat, one of the core ways he teaches the word in Pali, ehi pasiko, which is lovely, which is come and see for yourself. You too come and see. I can, he's saying, you know, I can see this. I know for myself that it's possible to awaken from this dream of confusion and delusion. This is how I did it. This is what I understand. Come and see for yourself. It's an invitation to explore, an invitation to really make good use of this precious life. You know? And as he said in, in many different places, he said, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. So that's what I've always loved, what I continue to love, this, this invitation, because it's necessary that we look and see for ourselves at this very salient point of life. And the most essential thing, again, that I really love is that when, as far as we can tell from reading, when the Buddha awakened and, and claimed his full awakening and all, he did not awaken into a different world. He awoken into the same body, the same physical conditions. People didn't start suddenly behaving better. You know, uh, there were still wars, there were still famines, there was still stupidity, there was still all the stuff (laughs) that we experience. And this is like a duh, it was like a duh moment for me somewhere way, way into my practice where I thought, oh, the Buddha's life after he awakened still had all this stuff happening, you know? It wasn't like floating on a cloud somewhere of everything lovely. So what was different, you know? And of course, as we hopefully have some trust and faith in her, you wouldn't still be sitting here, I'm pretty sure, is the sense that the seed, the core of suffering and the seed, the core of freedom from suffering, of peace, of ease, arises in the mind and the heart in any particular moment. And so this, this freedom this, uh, that he uh, is inviting us to come and explore is not in having the world change, but in our understanding of what's happening changes so that the way our heart and mind relates to experience is completely different. And this is really the freedom he talks about. 
So the first aspect of right view, I want to say, as our, as our job is this. Just having some sense, of course not a complete, but some sense of why we're doing it. And this gives us some, some energy, some motivation, you know, to get us on the path, to keep us on the path. I'll just read you this little story I just read that I enjoyed. It's, it sort of fits in. Um, Lama Surya Das, who spent a lot of time with Nyoshal Ken, the great, t- great Tibetan Dzogchen master, Joseph mentioned him the other night. So Surya Das tells this story of being in France, uh, Kempo uh, was in France. He was an older man at this time, lived all his life in Tibet and India, and it, he was traveling in France, and at some point he uh, ended up at a, a beach um, along the French coast, and he'd never been at a beach. They don't have beaches in Tibet. Uh, uh, or been to a beach and see how Westerners behave on a beach. So he came back and he was, you know, just describing about his his trip and everything. But then, uh, so he says, then all of a sudden he started talking about the beach, how they'd gone to the edge of the ocean. And first he said, wow, it's so big, you know, can you imagine never having seen the ocean? It's huge. And then he described what he had seen. He said, there were these people there. And instead of sitting and meditating or doing yoga, these people were just lying there, almost naked, doing nothing. (laughs) And when they were tired of lying there, instead of doing something, they just turned over. (laughs) And then they lay there again for another few hours. Kempo was truly, genuinely perplexed. So sort of like, uh, like Third Rock from the Sun, a TV show about aliens coming to Earth. You know, just, he said, why were they doing that? He asked over and over. He couldn't understand it. He had so much compassion for them. How could they waste? How could they waste their precious human existence? This life that is so short, so tenuous, so precious, so valuable, so necessary. A life to be used impeccably and usefully for our own welfare and the benefit of all. Not just to lounge around all day in the hot sun like a big sleeping lizard. He was impassioned now. I just wanted to go wake them up. And he had noticed a big white chair, you know, was probably the lifeguard's chair. (laughs) He said, but there were two young people sitting there so I couldn't go up, but I wanted to badly because I wanted to climb up there and announce to everybody that it was time to wake up. <laughs> so in our own way, that's a sense of right view, something, you know, so it's time to wake up. And it gives us the Buddhas having, you know, followed a path saying, yes, it's possible, is really helpful to keep going. Second aspect of right view, and I just want to talk a little about it because this is, again, vast, is, it's another reason I love right view actually as a translation of samaditi as a literal translation of viewing rightly or recognizing accurately, accurate perception. That what actually serves as the the mode, the catalyst of insight, of freeing insight, the insight that even just for a moment releases the habit 
of the mind and heart, of clinging or confusion or aversion, just in a moment. It's not like some willpower, now I will stop this. It's a sudden shift of perception where we recognize things as they are accurately. And when we recognize accurately, the response is appropriate. So what the Buddha is, and, and this again is a vast topic, but recognizing accurately, seeing that one way you can say that everything is natural. I think Guy, someone said this the other night, that basically everything's a process. Causes and conditions lead to a lawful effect. We're not going to see all of the causes and conditions and all of the effect, but there's a lawfulness. It isn't random. For example, if you plant a mango seed, we know we're not going to get an apple tree, right? It's, it's not a, a random thing. Or the, the so-called law of gravity. That's what I mean. It's not like if we wish hard enough, if I throw this up, if I wish hard enough, it won't fall back down again. We, we go, well, that's stupid, right? Well, the way things work, cause and effect in our mind and body is just the same. But until we see this, we kind of just keep wishing it would be different. You know, I just wish that I didn't have these, you know, unpleasant habits of mind. I wish I wasn't 61 years old, you know. That will change, but not in the direction I wish. And that will also be natural cause and effect. But it's not personal. And so what one of the, just in a, in a really nutshell, um, this sense of when we recognize accurately that everything is causes and conditions, there's a word for it, yata bhuta, recognizing things as they have come to be in this moment. It's a word often used in the suttas. Sometimes translated things as they are, but more accurate is things as they have come to be. Do you get a sense of how that's process? So in this moment, however it is for you sitting there, is how things have come to be in this moment as this momentary result of infinite past causes and conditions. You actually couldn't separate anything, could you? If you start trying to list all the causes and conditions for your being sitting here right now, well, it goes back to your birth and your parents and the universe and uh, the food and the farmers and the weather, and you can't separate anything out. And just in this moment, Things are as they have come to be, yata bhuta. This moment couldn't be different. How could it? It is as it is. Next moment will be different. The causes and conditions change again. Right view on this, on this aspect of recognizing things as they are, as they have come to be in this moment. It's a huge shift. It's the seed of insight. It's not so much about having some amazing experience and living in some other realm of reality. It's like waking up to what's actually going on now. The, this is, I'm simplifying, okay. Just know I'm simplifying. But, you know, the, the reason the seed of suffering and confusion, of clinging, of grasping, of resistance, of delusion keeps arising in our mind in response to is we don't recognize what's happening in the moment just as it is, and then our response isn't really aligned with reality. So I'll, I'll give some examples as I go along. But as you know, for example, clinging. Clinging to something that's already changed. 
why does it not work? Why does it not work? I mean, when we see it, it's so obvious that it's not that we have to then groan and grunt and give up clinging to that thing. The clinging doesn't arise anymore because it so obviously doesn't make sense. And you say, for, like, oh, do you cling to the sunset as the sun's going down? Oh, please, sun, don't go down. Maybe if something really bad you don't want to happen is going to happen when the sun goes down, we may be. But, but you know what I mean? We don't. It doesn't make sense. So in this way, the, the sense of ease, of freedom of heart and mind is truly natural and normal. It's not like some amazing thing we have to create from willpower. It's the natural effect of the cause of right view, of accurate recognition. And so this shift that hopefully our formal practice helps us with is this shift from putting so much of our um, attention and um, just so much of looking to experience and objects for meaning and fulfillment for the source of suffering and for the ending of suffering, change the object, change the experience. And our shift here and our second job is that of simple awareness of what's happening now. And I'll talk more about that. So the second job is sati, awareness, mindfulness, interest in how this mind is working in the moment, rather than how can I manipulate and fix what's going on so everything's a little bit better. But that's our habit. And so this another aspect of this, another way of describing this right view, what helps interest in the process arise, another aspect is just starting to see just for a moment how maybe our strategies haven't quite been working. This is from... And we know it on one level, or you wouldn't be here, you know, because this is, like someone said, this is no one's idea of a, maybe some people's, but not most people's idea of a vacation, you know. So you're here for some reason. So this is from Dingo Kensi Rinpoche. I'll just read the first. He talks about three attitudes of practice. The first one being renunciation, but he means it in a different way. Renunciation, kind of the root of all the subsequent stages of the path. And he's using it, he says, implies the strong wish, the strong motivation to free oneself, not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending unending sufferings of samsara. Samsara being that seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. There's this cycle of wanting and needing and getting and wanting and needing and becoming. With, when we start to just see that, with that comes a heartfelt weariness, a heartfelt disillusionment, disenchantment with our endless quest for gratification, for approval, for profit, for status. It's not like we're saying, oh, these things are bad and I'm bad for wanting it. And so, you know, that's just going from one to the other but seeing through the process itself. And this doesn't have to be some incredibly esoteric experience. I'll give you an example that I just, was another duh experience for me. 
recently. Okay, it's a little embarrassing, but it's, uh, I think it's a good example. Samsara, just this endless wanting, get it a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. There's some Tibetan, uh, I think it's Trungpa, I'm not sure who, but defining samsara is the urge to correct. Just can really relate to that. So anyway, it doesn't have to be esoteric. I noticed this. Um, I happen to be, I don't know why, uh, a tennis fan, real fan of professional tennis. I don't know why because I'm so non-sports oriented, but I really love um, following professional tennis. And so I, I just enjoy watching uh, the people play. I follow the tournaments. And of course, if you do that, you know, you end up having particular, uh, particular players that you root for. So mine's Federer, so someone who wins a lot, me and 10 million other people. But when I'm watching uh, a tournament and he's playing, it's so much suffering for me. I don't, I mean, I'm so stressed. Sometimes when I can see, I can just see he's making a lot of unforced errors. He's not getting in his first serves. I can see he's not, oh, this is, you know, this is not going in a good direction. Sometimes I have to stop and go take a walk. Sometimes I can't even watch. And I'll, you know, I'll get Joseph to um, record it on his TV. And then I check who won. I know you shouldn't do this. And then if he won, I'll go watch it. You know? Now, other guys I can watch and just really appreciate. Even if I have a slight preference, I can see that. And it's just wanting. I mean, and it's all made up. I mean, I don't know this guy from anybody. And I probably wouldn't like him. And why do I care? And it, what's happening? They're hitting the ball back. You know, if you go there, they're just hitting the ball back and forth, making a million dollars, whether they win or lose. But anyway, so I think I'm enjoying it. That's the point. No one's making me do this. And so this summer, this was the dumb moment. This was the, I mean, this has been going on for a few years. This is like not new, but this summer, so it was Wimbledon, which if you don't follow tennis, that's one of the biggest tournaments, one of the most prestigious tournaments. And um, Roger was number one for many years, but he's kind of hasn't been for a while and he hasn't won a major in a couple of years. And he's 30, now 31, so everyone kind of writing the death sentence, you can't. Anyway, so he's playing Wimbledon and Again, you know, the whole thing, so tense, you know, the whole, through the whole thing. And he won it, which was amazing. He won it. So he won Wimbledon. It's like he gets a new record for the most uh, tournaments ever won. He got back to being number one, which no one ever thought he could do. So long story short, in terms of that world, in terms of my wanting it, that's the best that could possibly happen. It couldn't be any better. How long does one stay happy from that? A day? two days, then you got to start worrying about the Olympics. Well, they're over. He didn't win that. Then you got to start worrying about the US Open, which just finished. And I even seeing, okay, he got to the quarters. And first I'm disappointed in this, like, well, thank God, I don't have to worry the next, you know, three days, I can just relax and just watch the tennis and not suffer. Okay. Now, when I say it like that, it's obviously really stupid, you know, that you get so caught up. And the samsaric part is without really looking, that passes for enjoyment, that passes for excitement, that passes for something that's really worth doing with one's time. And I'm only talking about me. I'm not talking about the tennis players or anyone else. When I start to see how that is, that is so 
perfect example of samsara. There's the, the lure of the next thing, the next thing. This is good, the next will be better. This isn't good enough, never mind, there's another chance. This was great, this was fantastic. Oh, now it's over, but so we gotta look to the next and always looking out, always looking next. Never just really present and content with what is, not for more than a few moments. This is samsara, looking, exploring. It's not a matter of saying it's good or bad. What makes the shift is mindfulness. It's like my habit, kicked in a little late, but my habit of just paying attention to what's going on in my mind. I mean, it wasn't so subtle, but actually really paying attention. Oh, I'm really not enjoying this very much. So it's not saying tennis is bad or good or watching it's bad or good or I should stop or anything like that. But just the simple awareness of just what's actually going on. Wisdom reveals itself. Wisdom comes just from the awareness. So I'm maybe watching a little less. Okay, not much. A little (laughs) less. I'm noticing when I'm not enjoying and just turning it off or not following. Not because I should or shouldn't, but because when we really see what's happening, the appropriate response of ease that leads to ease and freedom arises, you know? And uh, that can be applied anywhere. So this is our second job, simple awareness of what's happening now. Of course, we've been blabbing about this the whole time, simple and easy and not, right? So just simple awareness of what's happening now. Why do we lose it so much? Okay, I've been talking for like 20 minutes. Have you been aware of hearing? I mean, we're, you're hearing. You know you're hearing, but are you aware, have you been aware of the hearing process? Probably not. But probably as soon as I said it, right? It didn't take a lot of effort, did it? You said, oh yeah, right, hearing. Are you aware of seeing? You've been seeing it. Most of you have your eyes open. When I said see, oh yeah, seeing, right? It's not rocket science, but we just forget over and over and over. One of the really simple reasons, but why we forget is the ordinariness, the, just the ongoing repetition, this is another aspect of samsara, of our experience. You're sitting here is seeing, 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 seeing every second that your eyes are open. I'm not saying you need to catch it every second, but it's happening over and over. Hearing is happening over and over and over. Sensations in your body, different thoughts are coming and going, or moods. When you're sitting and walking, you're doing walking meditation. Why do you sometimes find walking meditation so boring? Oh, another step, another sensation. Lifting, pressure, tingling, burning. Lifting, pressure, tingling, burning. Lifting, pressure, tingling, please, God, stop, you know? And then we just zone out. And so it's not even in the formal practice, but just in our life going through. It isn't hard, but we just, through the, the mundanity, the ordinariness, we somehow stop paying attention, waiting for something worth paying attention to. Have you noticed that at all? Waiting for something that's, that's more interesting that's more worth, you know, my time here, that uh, 
offers the potential of some insight. Not just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, but something juicy. But this is it, folks. What is life? What is it we experience? I mean, and someone said this over and over. The six things, right? The six sense doors, the six sense objects, consciousness coming together, all that's happening, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, sensing in the body, touching, sensing, same one, and mental experience, mental experiences. We can give all kinds of different meanings and labels and interpretations, which is mental experience. But that's all that's happening over and over. And so much of it seems so ordinary that the habit of this interest quality that comes with mindfulness, with awareness, tends to drop out. Again, it's kind of like back to the tennis, back to that's how some sorrow works. It has to be worth paying attention so that the interest, the worth, we place in the experience, in the object. And the shift of refuge, the real radical shift that this second job of ours of mindfulness brings up is this shift to just the interest in, the, in the, that moment of awareness, the mind itself. That the aliveness, the interest, the curiosity, the sense of you know, totality of life, it's not about the experience being better. Because just like you know, I said, sometimes in walking you're so bored. Other times in walking it's just amazing, right? Is your walking better then? Just we're present. Not we, but there's that, that mindfulness, that interest, that aliveness. The, the mind isn't fragmented. It's not waiting, trying to correct, needing something. Ah, oh, this sense of simplicity of awareness. That's our second yogi job. Just simple mindfulness. Not to make things better or different, but to recognize accurately what's already happening right now. And not even to recognize, that's already a doing. The only way of recognizing accurately is by this moment, just pure, simple awareness. It's like this right now. Nothing's too mundane. Nothing's too ordinary. Dogen, the great uh, Zen master, Japanese Zen master, said one time, if you cannot discover the truth right where you are, Where do you expect to find it? The mundane, the ordinary. This is where the most profound aspects of reality are revealed because this is it. There is nowhere else. Like I said, the Buddha awoke up into this world. And one other other aspect that really helps to keep uh, mindfulness complicated. Mindfulness not complicated, but how we get so sidetracked and how it seems to move from the simplicity, like I just said. So just be with what is. And we all go, yeah, right. How come we can't do it? Besides the the habit of just checking out when it's not interesting enough, is the other complication, and we've talked about this a lot, and we will again more, the complication of when the Let me put it another way. Another way of describing experience is that in every moment there's 
an object arising and a mind, awareness of it. That's just a, this is a simple, not Abhidhamma, but a simple way of describing. Again, it's the way Utejaniya talks a lot. But so in any moment of mindfulness, to say seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, mental experience, some objects arising, and with awareness there's the knowing of it. Those happen together like two sides of the same experience, but different functions. So you can say anything that can be known, that's an object. Smelling, hearing, tasting, thinking, unpleasant experience, whatever. And the, 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 the mind, the consciousness, that recognition and awareness, the factor of mindfulness, knows, oh, that's just what's happening. comes together. Again, our tendency to always be looking towards what's happening, the object, and assessing, is it good, is it bad, is it this, is it that? What does it mean about me? Endless stuff. That keeps us going in samsara forever. What we're doing with mindfulness, with our practice, is just sort of expanding I don't want to say turning around, but expanding the awareness to also recognize and be interested in the process in the mind. And so how we get confused, one way, what we don't recognize, what, what obstructs accurate recognition, when, when in a moment of uh, what we think is mindfulness or in a moment of knowing, say there's a sound and a knowing of sound, hearing, very simple. When in that moment of conscious knowing is colored by uh, wanting something, by dislike, fear, aversion, you know, dosa, uh, or confusion, delusion, I'll talk more about that. When they're present and we don't recognize and there's not an awareness of those, not a recognition, it's like that distorts actually our perception, our assessment, it can distort the whole way we experience things. And we, we don't see that's what's happening. That's what keeps us, not keeps us, because it arises and passes, arises and passes. But this is such a deep habit, just habits of mind. So, you know, a sound, just all day, the six things arising, say a sound arises. And over and over and over and over, just with the habit, without awareness, as you know, it, it, might, it might be felt in the mind as a pleasant, unpleasant, or neither one. And we're not labeling it that. We're not even aware of that. It just has that kind of subtle resonance in the mind. So, and it doesn't have to be the same for everyone. So say some of the loud, sudden sounds outside there with the guys working. For some one person, they might not notice it much at all. You know, it's just kind of neither pleasant or unpleasant. For someone else, it's really jarring, and the mind just has this, you know, kind of registering it as unpleasant. And just the habit, and as you know how fast our mind's working, so fast, it goes into a liking or a disliking, that goes into a thought about it, an assessment about it, and what does it mean about me, about them, or what can we do about it, or whatever. I don't have to tell you, right, how far and fast that stuff goes. And if, if mindfulness just starts to notice those thoughts, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the aversion, fine. Those are simply next arising objects then it's not a problem. We may not like it, then we're back into not liking when we're not recognizing it. That's what we call identified, right? So the habit, and it's just all day long, I like this, I don't like this, what does this mean? How can I fix it? How can I get different? No wonder we're exhausted. And it's so how 
you know, our lives are lived, not just here. I mean, when we're not practicing with awareness, we don't even notice that's how our lives are lived. It, it's almost like it, that's what that way of reacting and describing and defining things, that almost is like our refuge. You know what I mean? Like when something really nice happens, the natural thing is to want more. When there's some pain, some discomfort in the body, the natural thing is to get the hell out of here. And we try and say, no, why don't you stay and look at it? The result, why should I stay and look at it if I can move? That doesn't make any sense at all. You know, and on that level, it doesn't. But we never really learn what's going on. So that becomes our refuge. We cannot recognize accurately because we're overlooking. We're so focused on the object and how to fix it. What does it mean about me that we're overlooking how the mind's working? The fact that the seed of the suffering, the discontent, isn't about that sound is too rough or at the wrong time or I'm too sensitive or whatever. You know, it's the reactivity in the mind unrecognized and identified with and persisting. Now it's our habit and these greed, confusion, aversion, delusion, called the kalesa or torments of mind, they're, I would say they're louder. (laughs) They're more obnoxious, you could say, than the wholesome states of mind, such as mindfulness such as interest, such as faith, such as calm, such as metta. Although, you know, any of these can be strong and beautiful and we really can recognize them as well. It's not only torments arising in the mind. But they make a big fuss. They get our attention. And our habit is to really believe the story they're telling, which is why our habit of mindfulness gets derailed, but it's why it's so powerful. Like with my tennis story, when I started with awareness, and it was no big, now I'm going to be aware. It was just kind of sitting there watching, and instead of just being so focused, noticing what was going on in my mind, and just noticing it with no, um, no assumption of what should happen. And again, I said, it was not subtle. But I was like, whoa, this is really actually unpleasant. This is suffering. This is stress. And then just starting to observe the whole process. Not say it should stop or it's bad, but get interested. Okay, this is stress. What keeps it going? Well, if I want, if the thought comes up in my mind, oh, I want this to happen, ah, the stress goes up. So well, it doesn't matter. It's whatever happens, happens, the stress goes down. I mean, not just saying it and pretending, right? But really seeing, okay, can be with things as they are. Just that exploring, it's a shift of refuge. It's much more radical. And what helps us to explore is, again, the aspect of right view of realizing none of this is personal. It's just nature. Just like, you know, if I throw this up, it's going to come back down. And it'll probably make a sound. It's just nature, and wanting it to be otherwise doesn't change that. And blaming myself for it doesn't change that. Just exploring steady, 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 you know, seeing, like, yeah, let that one go. (laughs) So what we can do and continue to do here, and I'll talk more about this, or one of us will later, I just can only mention it now, is to explore 
get really interested in the nature of wanting or greed when it's arising, not hating it. Somehow we think it's better. There's so much craving in my mind. That just shows what a bad person I am, what a bad meditator, how hopeless. As if somehow substituting hatred for greed is good. Yeah, we believe that. Oh, yeah, now I'm doing good. I'm beating myself up. I'm seeing everything I'm doing wrong, so I'm on the right track. And, you see, we believe it. Or sometimes when it's just interested, you see, sometimes you start to see a lot of wanting coming up. And people will come and say, oh, I just see so much wanting. And I'll say, great. Because it's coming up. There's some reason the Buddha picked craving as the, as the second noble truth, as the cause of suffering. I don't think he just like, you know, just pulled it out of the air. And I don't think it's because it only happens once in a while in really bad people. You know, I think it's pretty much a really subtle and ongoing, easily arising aspect of experience. So great. Mindfulness doesn't judge. Mindfulness gets interested in exploring it. So when we see wanting come up, don't believe that it's what obstructs clear seeing. Don't believe me. Explore and see what happens. So simple, I'm just going to give a couple of just only simple examples. Um, you're walking in walking meditation, and the bell rings for lunch. And you're still walking to lunch. What's the quality in the mind, especially if you're hungry? Is the quality in the mind any different? And it's not going to always be, but sometimes it is. Explore and see, especially if it smelled good before. You know, and just that kind, of, that kind of narrowing of our field before just being present, walking, whatever's arising, arising. I mean, if there's some mindfulness, right? And you're just being with what is, and suddenly, ah, got to get there. Or you want to get to the sitting, or you want to get to your room, or you want to get to bed. That's, um, for me on retreat, that's a big one. <laughs> Please, let me get to bed. But noticing... It's not a good or bad about the thing wanted, but what's the quality in the mind? How it goes from just being at ease and relaxed to uh, narrow, restricted, me and other. The Buddha said that wanting and aversion and delusion are makers of measurement in the mind. They limit, they constrict, and make the sense of me and other something needed with wanting or something that must go away with unpleasant, you know, a sense of problem. Without that, it's just what is. Explore and see, that's all. And with, um, oh, and, and when there is wanting, again, look and see if this is true for you. And we're not recognizing it. So it may in the beginning be a little bit in retrospect, but then you can kind of see it happening as it's happening. Notice how, especially if it's a strong wanting, and so mm, maybe you're having a strong, pleasant fantasy about what's going to happen in the future, or your next vacation, or how great your next sitting is, or whatever the heck. It doesn't matter. And you're really in it. There's a little modicum of mindfulness awareness that at least you sort of know there's a fantasy happening, right? You can <laughs> vaguely know it's pleasant. Every once in a while, you can pull out, but then, yeah, but boom, you know, back in. Exploring that pleasant and explore how, and this could be with anything, it doesn't have to be with a fantasy, 
how the, the, the story of it is, this is going to be so wonderful, so amazing. I used to plan dinner parties or you're planning a vacation. And very conveniently, all the kind of difficult grunt stuff that has to go on, that isn't part of the fantasy, is it? It's going to be amazing. I'm going to have this dinner party and have this food. You forget about the shopping and the cooking and the food burns and the people can't come and you get nervous and it's so much work and you have a headache. And none of that stuff. It's just going to be fantastic because wanting just shows us how wonderful something is. So we don't see the wanted object accurately and anything else that's kind of in the way, that's what everything else is. It's in the way. So we're also not recognizing that accurately. It skews our perception. Yata, bhuta, things as they have come to be. Accurate recognition isn't possible. Same with aversion. Same with an unpleasant, uncomfortable experience arises. And right away, and it seems unnatural, you know, let's get rid of it. And this, it can lead to annoyance, blame, the whole story. It can go, as we know, it can go into you know, weeks, it can, it can run our lives sometimes. But here, just explore. First, it's more obvious, usually, that aversion, dislike, fear, unpleasant experience, it's more obvious, duh, that it's unpleasant. I mean, I have friends who, who are self-identified so-called greed types. I mean, that's kind of the first movement of mind, seeing the pleasant and moving toward it, who try to pretend that that's not really suffering. But on the aversive side, you can't really pretend. Occasionally, you can really have some good righteous anger, and that feels good. But basically, you can feel the burning. And anyone else around is quite happy to tell you, yes, this is bad and you're suffering. But explore it for yourself and see, does it obstruct clear seeing? How is it suffering? How does aversion, dislike, work? Not just say it's bad. Explore it. See the nature of it. It's fascinating. And it is personal. We're making it personal. Then right away, it's really hard. As soon as it's there, oh, I'm so bad. I should be like this. And we're sucked into the story. That's just story, too. Pull out, go, oh, yeah, that's just aversion. Aversion's coloring the consciousness is coloring the perception. And at that moment, any thought that comes up is going to be seen through the filter of aversion. It's the reason why, in terms of practice, if you're in a real doubting of self-aversive phase, have you ever experienced that? (laughs) And then you're trying to remember all the different techniques and what skillful means. And you're trying, well, I'm I'm too sleepy, or I'm too dull, or I'm too tight, or I'm too loose, or there's not enough breath, or there's too much breath, or whatever you're choosing. And you're trying to think, what can I do to fix it, right? But you're not quite saying that. You're saying, "Mm, I'm a little bit off. How do I fix it? But the coloring in the mind is, I'm worthless, no good, this stinks, I stink, this is wrong. How can I fix it? And any Fixing thought that arises at that moment, when you're not recognizing that aversion is coloring perception, any fixing thought is going to be colored by aversion, completely unreliable. Completely. Oh, I should take a walk. That'll be. You know, then I'll rely. Oh, I should just practice harder. That's usually the way it goes. I'll just stay with the breath until. <laughs> you know? And we somehow miss 
the aversion. Why doesn't that work? You know? We don't see it. Explore. Explore. And the third aspect of delusion, of course, both of those are delusion. One way delusion shows is just, duh, I don't know what's happening. That's the obvious one. We don't have to take that so personally. The other way is the, the again, this is one way Tejaniya talks about it. One of the ways delusion shows up is in uh, making assumptions and believing the assumptions as descriptions, as accurate descriptions of what's going on. I mean, we don't even recognize we're doing this. So he gives an example, again, a simple example of someone you've just met. And so here you can kind of notice that in people you've seen and you don't really know. Our mind makes up all kinds of stuff about them, does assumptions, which sometimes we know we're making it up, and sometimes we don't, you know? You think, oh, that poor person, they're just such a sad person, I really feel so much compassion. You, know, you have no clue. Or you pass someone in the street and go, wow, he's an angry person. I'm glad I don't have to have anything to do with him, you know? Or you see someone, oh, she looks a little crazy. I wonder what's going on. And we're doing this all the time. We talk about judgments. Sometimes it's obvious, great, but sometimes it's not. And we just kind of quite believe it. Well, in our practice here, we can explore that. It's the same thing. And it can get quite subtle where... um, and it's probably happening for most of you. It happens for me a lot. Where I'm, I'm mindful. I think I'm mindful of what's happening. And there's kind of a subtle, sometimes it's just a subtle commentary, or it's a kind of a description. Oh, this is what's happening, and this is why it's happening, and this is what this means, right? And we think, kind of think it's true. It's not, any, not, not when it's a big thing, but just a little. think it's true. We think it's mindfulness. And it's actually thinking, describing, assuming. And the thoughts can be subtle, and we can easily mistake them for simple mindfulness. That's all. Just noticing that. That's a form of delusion, subtle one. And usually, this isn't so subtle. It's all about me, me, me. Just notice how long does it take any of the six sense experiences that are arise and known to somehow have something to do. What does it mean about me? Or what do they think about me? Or what is this going to let me people look like? How do I look? Or you know, just it's endless. Explore that. It's not personal either. Oh, just an example of the difference. A little thing that happened to me. A difference between assumptions, not quite seeing, and thinking it's mindfulness. Not so long ago, um, after some conversation I'd had with somebody, not any big deal conversation, but somehow the conversation I, I felt in myself later like a. Uh, an uncomfortable residue, you know, and you can relate to that, right? Not like some, not some big fight or anything, but just a kind of an uncomfortable residue left. To just, and when a memory of the conversation would just pop up, um, I would just feel this kind of, I don't remember, it was, wasn't quite shame, embarrassment, discomfort, sadness, I wasn't quite what, but I, you know, I feel stuff here, so I was feeling that. They would come, and I thought I was being quite mindful, not investigating what does it mean in my past, but just feeling it. That's what I thought. Um, and just going about my day whenever it would come up. I'd be aware of the visual memory. That's how stuff comes up, visual memory. And, and I wasn't noting. I'm going through the day. And aware of the unpleasant residue. And then they'd be sort of, well, I wonder, what's the hook here? Because it keeps coming, so there's a hook. And, uh, and I wasn't like, you know, analyzing a lot, but I'd notice that thought, what's the hook? And so you have to figure it out. It keeps coming. Mm, I must be wanting something from that person. What do you know? I don't know. 
And I was really thinking that was mindfulness. I mean, I was aware, but it wasn't like the clear awareness of mindfulness. And then at some point, because then I thought, well, why does this keep coming up? And this was a little thing, you know. It wasn't like some big suffering. But it's through the day. Why does this keep coming up? This little, and finally, I just was sitting there, a liner there or something. I thought, oh, unpleasant, uncomfortable feeling. Try feeling it. Just feeling it. Not all of what does it mean and connected with this and blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, uncomfortable feels like this. With no so that, not to get rid of it, not to understand it, just because that's what's happening. That's the simplicity of mindfulness. So I was just feeling it. And then this is the steadiness of awareness. And this is our third job, the steadiness of mindfulness, the willingness to remember, to try and remember moment after moment, the perseverance. The steadiness is what allows wisdom to come and just feeling unpleasant, like, oh, the whole sense of struggle around it was gone in that moment. And then the understanding came just from being with, oh, it wasn't all about what's the hook and I want something and yada, yada, yada. It was just simple aversion, subtle aversion to just feeling the unpleasant, uncomfortable feeling. As simple as that. I can't tell you how often it's as simple as that. But our, it's all about me doesn't really quite trust that it could be so simple. And even think if now you're thinking, but maybe it was important that she knew what it was about, right? Well, it's really important if she, if she wants somebody something from that person. Well, you know what? If I'm working with steady awareness, if wanting something from that person arises, guess what? I'll notice it instead of trying to go and figure it out. But this is a subtle. I don't know if I'm quite making it clear. But this is really where it's a radical shift to just trusting the simplicity of awareness of what's happening now. Not for anything else, but for simply trust in the, the simplicity of mindfulness itself. And our third job, and this is essential, is the, of course we can't stay continuous, but the willingness the understanding of the power of the moment-to-moment-to-moment steadiness of the simplicity of mindfulness. Without that, it's not meaningless, but where the reality, the, the profound and the mundane, where the wisdom can grow, the conditions for wisdom to arise, is through the momentum of steady awareness. Because that's where we really see what's what. Where we can really see how the causes and conditions come to be. Other than without the steadiness, we see something happen, then we kind of pull away. Then we go, oh, every time I'm walking, this happens. I don't know why. I better do something else, you know. But if we just pay attention, we start to see. Let me read a little example Tejaniya gave. Just very basic, but it's probably clearer than I would if I tried to make one up. So this is only with steady awareness. You might, for example, feel quite relaxed and calm while walking to the meditation hall, and then you notice a subtle restlessness during the sitting. So the mind is now aware of the restlessness, accepts the experience, and starts getting interested. And this is the key to all of it. We're interested. How does nature work? It isn't personal. 
the question may come up, why is there restlessness? But then the mind, the awareness simply stays with this question with the interest in the experience. At the same time, the mind, awareness also notices and feels the physical tension, which you know is somehow connected to the feeling of restlessness. For example, a tightness in the stomach. Then suddenly, there might be the understanding that there's an accumulation of small incidences of stress, frustration, or feelings of elation that lies behind this restlessness and the physical tension. In other words, wisdom starts sorting things out. Do you get how that wasn't thinking about what could this be? But just this restlessness is like this. Okay, it's feeling the restlessness, getting interested. How does it feel? I wonder why it's here. How does it feel? Feeling the body. Steady, 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 simple mindfulness is the condition that allows for clear seeing of the whole cause and effect process. Wisdom starts sorting things out. And that's so hard for us to trust because we kind of feel like we have to cultivate the wisdom, don't we? One of the reasons we talk about all the right views, if I'd gone into it, and then we think, well, I have to somehow start seeing all this in my practice. And right there, there's the wanting. And we miss the wanting in trying to see the right thing. But steadiness of mindfulness isn't choosing what's better to pay attention to. It's just choosing what's here now. Steady, steady, steady. But relax. Aware, guy said aware like a verb. And perseverance, steadiness. Or as Tejaniya says, never give up. Which means we space out. Oh yeah, am I aware? You're here again. What's going on? Seeing. We're here again. That simple, that relaxed, that mundane, over and over and over. Really starting to trust that we don't, we can't make wisdom arise. That's just some thought we don't even know. We can't make accurate recognition, clear-seeing happening because that wanting is exactly the thing that distorts perception. This was like, this is another like so obvious, but I found it really helpful. Like, you know, in practice when you're really, we're really trying to be calm or really with sincere intention trying to keep coming back and stay with the breath or you're really trying to have your awareness stay steady through the whole walking period. And somehow back there we think that, we wouldn't put it this way, we think if we want it hard enough, it's going to happen. And when it doesn't happen, it's like somehow we didn't want it hard enough. Instead of seeing, instead with the steady awareness, we see what are the causes and conditions that allow this to happen? What allows, what are the conditions that bring calm to the mind? Wanting harder? I don't think so. But we have to look and see. The more I want, the more restless the mind gets. Just keep watching. That's fascinating. It doesn't matter what's happening. It's going to reveal the profound truth if we cultivate steadiness. So two last things. One, uh, a tip from Joseph that he came up with at the last retreat we were teaching that might help with this sense of <laughs> continuity. <laughs> he told me to say this. But it's a good one. It really, people really liked it. So notice in practice 
how we may tend to have this subtle sense of priority, even though we all say there's not. The priority being that the sitting is really the most important where it's at, right? And if you can only do one thing, you do the sitting. The walking, okay, some people are learning to like it, and we do it, maybe a little bit grudging, but we know that's not quite the whole thing. And the daily activities, the, the, the work meditation, the taking a shower, the eating, the going to the toilet, yeah, okay, that's third. We, when when you know, our, our, the rest of our practice is going okay, then maybe we can really give some attention to that. So Joseph's tip is reverse all of that. Turn it on its head. Make the most important priority the daily activities. Not to do them right, but to just remember this simple awareness. So you're scrubbing the floor, right? Do I know I'm scrubbing? That's all. It doesn't have to be feeling every molecule in your pinky as you're scrubbing and being aware of pleasant, unpleasant. It could just be really broad. Scrubbing feels like this. That's mindfulness. Hello, and mindfulness is what we love. Just this simple awareness, learning to love it. Not knowing what's going to happen, what's going to happen next, but have that openness to discover, that openness to explore. Not having to have an explanation and a description that defines our world, but just be willing to see, oh, uncomfortable feeling feels like this, without needing to know what's going to happen next. And then we're present for what happens next. So the three jobs, right view, simple awareness, never give up. (laughs) But only moment by moment. You can't never give up tomorrow, only this moment. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.